What's the first thing you want someone else to know about you? When you meet somebody for the first time or they ask you who you are or tell me about yourself, what do you say? Do you tell them your country of origin? Do you tell them your vocation? Do you tell them your name? In Exodus chapter 4, God gets an opportunity to introduce himself. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, God passed before Moses and proclaimed this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. Hmm. The all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe who doesn't speak an idle word, the very first thing that he wants for you and me to know about who he is, is that he's merciful. Now, Luke, why are you talking about Exodus chapter 34 and God's interaction with Moses? I thought we were studying Jonah. Well, Jonah is a book about God's mercy. You might have grown up in church and you think that Jonah is a story about a big fish or Jonah is a story about a prophet of God. Some of those things may be true. Even if you didn't grow up in church, if you grew up in North America, you may recall watching a Disney movie called Pinocchio in the 1930s where Pinocchio and his creator, Geppetto, end up in the belly of a whale called Monstro. That was patterned after the book of Jonah. So even in our modern Western mindset and our collective consciousness, we have glimmers of the book of Jonah. And you might think that it's about this or that or this or that, but can I just tell you, Jonah is a book about God's mercy. Jonah is a book about God introducing himself to humankind and affirming over and over and over again what he told Moses in Exodus chapter 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. Now, let's define mercy quickly and then we'll get into the book of Jonah. Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or or harm. So mercy is the act of withholding deserved punishment. Mercy is the act of withholding deserved punishment. And because Jonah is a book about God's mercy, what we'll see is God over and over again withholding deserved punishment from Jonah, from sailors, from the Ninevites, from God's people. And he does that by expressing his mercy in so many unique and special ways. In the book of Jonah, we'll see mercy expressed as God's discipline. In the book of Jonah, we'll see God's mercy expressed as his common grace, whereby he pours out goodness on all of humankind, not just the very family of God. We'll see mercy as transforming our identity. Once we see ourselves as the recipients of God's mercy, we see ourselves as completely different as we interact with the world around us. We'll see mercy as the gasoline that fuels God's mission in the world. We'll see God's mercy as taking us to rock bottom 
even if it means putting us in the belly of a big fish. We'll see God's mercy expressed as God's sovereign control over all that we can see and all that we cannot see. And this is what Jonah is about. It's a book about God's mercy. Now, before we understand what it is that God wants to affirm about himself and his character through the book of Jonah, we got to understand what's happening here culturally, don't we? And historically, we got to understand a little bit about the context and the details surrounding and what's happening. And maybe, just maybe, we need to answer a question that might be pressing on some of your minds. Did this dude really get swallowed by a big fish? Did this really happen? Now, I'm going to tell you what I think, but before I tell you what I think, first of all, the book is not about a big fish. What's the book about? Jonah's book about God's mercy. It's not about a big fish. Four chapters, big fish is mentioned twice, two times. That's it. It's not about a fish. That's number one. Number two, there are lots of different opinions on this. Much smarter, much more researched, and much more godly men and women than me believe that Jonah really got swallowed by a big fish. Much more godly, much smarter, much more well-read men and women than me believe that Jonah did not get swallowed by a big fish, and this is more of a parable to teach us a lesson. In either case, uh, here's, here's what I think. I think that the book of Jonah is like one of those jokes that starts like this. You know, Donald Trump and Martin Luther and a unicorn walk into a bar. Do you see that there's a combination of nonfiction and fiction there? Real people, living people, deceased, deceased people, fictional things, walk into a bar. And nobody stops that joke and goes, whoa, 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 that never happened. Same way, nobody would stop the book of Jonah and go, whoa, 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 that never happened because that's not what that joke's about and that's not what the book of Jonah is about. What's the book of Jonah about? It's about God's mercy. So do I believe that there was literally a man named Jonah who was a prophet of God in the 8th century B.C.? Yes, I absolutely do. Do I believe he was called to go to a group of people called the Ninevites, and instead of going to them, he ran away from them? We'll get into more detail here in a minute. Yes, I do. Do I believe that he was literally swallowed by a big fish? No, I don't. I don't place that beyond God's capacity to do. I do not think in any way, shape, or form it undermines the authority, veracity, historicity, inerrancy, and infallibility of the Scripture. I just believe that the author of Jonah is trying to teach us something here. And what the author Jonah is trying to teach us is not something about Jonah, maybe not even something about ourselves, but ultimately the author of Jonah is trying to teach us something about God. The author of Jonah is trying to teach us something about God. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about the structure of the book of Jonah because it's important for us to kind of understand how the author of Jonah mirrors two stories and compares and contrasts them. These two stories are about Jonah's first call, which he rejects, and Jonah's second call, which he really reluctantly accepts and then gets angry about it afterwards. And if you kind of take you know, the book of Jonah and divide it into part A and part B, chapters 1 and 2 fall under part A. Chapters 3 and 4 fall under part B. 
And in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. In chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Do you see there how they're mirroring each other already? In chapter 1, verse 2, uh, God tells Jonah the message that is to be conveyed. And in chapter 3, verse 2, God does the same. In chapter 1, verse 3, Jonah responds. In chapter 3, verse 3, Jonah responds. Uh, there's a word of warning. There's a response of the pagans. There's a response of the pagan leader. There's a demonstration that Jonah's response is suboptimal and the pagans' response is better. That happens in Jonah 1 verse 7 and Jonah 3 verse 7. And then God teaches Jonah about his grace. In one case, he uses a big fish. The other case, he uses a plant. And then following that instruction in Jonah chapter 2, there's a conversation that happens between Jonah and God. And in Jonah chapter 4, there's a conversation that happens between Jonah and God. These two parts, part A and part B, mirror one another in order to teach us something. Now, all of the events of Jonah happened in the 8th century BCE, where Jonah was a prophet of God to God's people. In fact, the only other time in all of Scripture that Jonah is mentioned, well, all the Old Testament anyway, that Jonah is mentioned is 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. It says that the God of Israel spoke through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, uh, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So we know who Jonah's father is. That's all we know is that Amittai was Jonah's dad and that Jonah was from a place called Gath-Hefer. But we also know because God spoke through his prophet Jonah that Jonah was a prophet to Israel. Jonah was a prophet to Israel. Say that with me. Jonah was a prophet to Israel. Jonah was God's megaphone to God's people. That was the role of the prophet back then. You tell the people what I want them to hear. That's a nice transition into Jonah chapter 1. You've already heard it read much better than I'm about to read it right now. But let's revisit, shall we? Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Stop right there. That's a typical uh, prophetic formula there where God calls his prophet. That happens all the time throughout the Old Testament. And typically you would see one of two responses. One, the prophet would go, yes, God, I'll go. That happens occasionally. More often than not, what you see is the prophet give an excuse. Recall the story of Moses. God came to Moses. So Moses, go tell, my pe- or go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses said, I don't talk so good. There's an excuse there. It's interesting because Jonah does neither of those two things. He doesn't say, yes, God. He doesn't give an excuse. Look what he says in verse 2. God says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come upon me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He doesn't even say anything back to God. God says, get up, go to Tarshish and, and tell them that their evil has come up before me. Call out against that great city. And Jonah gets up and flees to Tarshish. Now, a lot of things are going on here that are very interesting. One is this. God says, go to Nineveh, that great city. The first thing that original listeners and readers would have heard here is that Jonah is now no longer a prophet to God's people. Jonah is being called to a city that exists outside of the nation of Israel. These are not God's people. These are pagans. These are polytheists. We'll see in a minute, this is a violent group of people. And Jonah is called to go speak a word of warning to that group of people. Second, Jonah 
doesn't respond like a typ typical prophet would by saying, yes, God, I'll go, or yeah, I'm probably not your best choice. Jonah literally gets up and runs in the exact opposite direction, repeated twice there in verse three, he runs away from the presence of the Lord. Now, as a prophet of God, Jonah knows full well he can't do this, but he gives it a good shot anyway. Take a look at this map up here on the screen. You'll see Gath-Hefer there, where Jonah's from, according to 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, which was very proximate to Jerusalem. And you'll also see north of that is Nineveh. That's where Jonah is being called to go, north and east. And Jonah goes south and west. He goes to a port called Joppa. He pays his fare in verse 3, we learn that, to go with that group of people to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. It's very interesting here because Jonah doesn't just run away, but he runs in the exact opposite direction God has called him. Additionally, history suggests that Tarshish was at the very edge of kind of the understood and known world for the Hebrews at that time. So not only does he run in the opposite direction, he runs as far away as he possibly can. Jonah starts on dry land and he ends up on a boat. Jonah starts in Israel and he ends up way outside of the boundaries. Jonah is running as hard and fast away from God as he possibly can. Begs the question, why? Why doesn't Jonah want to go? Why does Jonah not want to go call the Ninevites to repentance as God has commanded him to do? Well, there could be all kinds of reasons. One, the Ninevites had a reputation, to be honest with you. A reputation for being exceedingly and grotesquely even violent. Now, I want to warn you that what I'm about to read here is kind of rated R for gore. And there's a lot of more stuff that I could read about the Ninevites and the Assyrian Empire at the time. But I'm going to read one little snippet so you kind of get a gist of who these people were. Now, Nineveh was not the capital of the Assyrian Empire, but it was the origin of the Assyrian Empire. And an Assyrian general at the time, in the 8th century, wrote this about their military habits. I flayed the skin from as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of corpses. I cut off the heads of their fighters and built with them a tower before their city. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands. He says some because what they would do with their victims is cut off both of their legs and one of their arms so that those who were killing the victim could shake the hand of the victim as the victim died. I mean, just really wicked stuff. I cut off of others their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of the heads, and I hung their heads on trees around the city. In fact, it was a regular habit of the Assyrian Empire and the Ninevites to make family members march with the heads of their loved ones on sticks. This was a terrifying group of people. Jonah likely could be afraid. It's possible that Jonah doesn't want to compromise Israel's military and economic success. This is a group of people outside of the nation of Israel. And God says, go call out against them. 
And Jonah knows full well if they repent, we'll see it in verse in chapter 4, if they repent, then God will extend what? Mercy. Jonah himself actually says it in chapter 4, verse uh, 1 and 2. After a second uh, calling of Jonah, he ends up going to Nineveh and says, repent and turn. They do to some extent, and God relents, shows his mercy. And chapter 4, verse 1 tells us, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He's mad because God, God has been kind. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee for Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Sound familiar? It's because that's the way God introduces himself in Exodus chapter 34. In any case, Jonah has so many reasons, but he doesn't want to go. Not only does he, done, not, only does he not want to go, but he runs in the opposite direction, pays his own fare, gets on a boat, and heads out to Tarshish. While he's on the boat, God hurls a storm onto the water. Uh, the Bible uses that word hurls like a warrior hurls a spear. God uses a storm as a weapon to get Jonah's attention. You heard that scripture read a minute ago, but the sailors that were with Jonah are terrified. These are experienced, seasoned sailors who are afraid because their boat is coming apart. You can almost hear in your own mind, the creaking and cracking of the boat that is going to come apart amongst the wind and the waves. And where is Jonah? He's down in the bottom of the boat, asleep. Now, it's interesting because the book of Jonah uses a lot of these contrasts, these surprises. Recall, God's command to Jonah was, Arise! And Jonah went down. To Joppa. God's call was arise. Now Jonah is down in the bottom of the boat. God's call was arise. And here momentarily, he's going to say, throw me in to the bottom of the sea. He is just still running from God. The captain shakes him up, gets him up on the deck of the ship. And the sailors look at him and say, who are you? What do you do for a living? Where do you come from? What's going on? And Jonah finally says, look, I'm a Hebrew, I worship the God of the land and the sea, and this is my fault. Throw me into the water. And now it's really interesting here because Jonah is not virtuous here, right? He's God's prophet. He doesn't really own his responsibility. He's asleep in the hull of the boat while everybody else is trying to fix the situation and battle the storm. And the sailors, instead of tossing him overboard, what did they do? They try to row back to land. They try to save his life. See, these pagan sailors are more virtuous than God's prophets. Another contrast that we'll look at over the next few weeks. Unfortunately, the sailors are not successful. And they end up throwing Jonah into the sea to his death. But chapter 1 concludes this way. God appointed a big fish that swallowed up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three nights and three days. Chapter 1 ends a little bit on a cliffhanger. It leaves me wondering, what's next? What's going to happen? I hope that it feels the same for you. Now, let's wrap it up here and with a couple of concluding thoughts 
as we prepare to kind of go on this journey through Jonah together. First, I want you to know, remember, that Jonah is a book about God's mercy. His his withholding of punishment that we deserved. Second, we might go one step further and say that Jonah is a book about God's severe mercy. About those moments in the life of Jonah, in our lives as well, where God uses difficult stuff in order to draw us to Himself. In Jonah's life, God used a difficult call. He used a storm. He used pagan sailors. He used those sailors dumping Jonah off the side of the boat. And he used, appointed a big fish in all of God's sovereignty. He collected all these things together in order to extend Jonah mercy. Now, it might have felt severe to Jonah at the time, but these were all expressions of the mercy of God. That phrase, uh, severe mercy, was the title of a book that was written in the 20th century by an individual named Sheldon Van Alken. Uh, Sheldon Van Alken met the love of his life uh, just before he uh, went to World War II and they were married. Uh, Fortunately, he was stationed in Hawaii and eventually he and his wife, Davy, ended up at Oxford and met a man named C.S. Lewis. They thought was fascinating for a number of reasons. First, he was very, very smart. Second, he was a very, very devoted follower of Christ. Davy, Sheldon Van Alken's wife, gave her life to Jesus. Van Alken himself was reluctant. He didn't think that God was real. He didn't think God had anything to offer him. Shortly thereafter, Davy was uh, diagnosed with an incurable virus, given a year to live and didn't survive more than three months. And Van Alken titled his book, Severe Mercy, because it was the death of the love of his life that God used to draw Van Alken to himself. And eventually, Van Alken wrote an entire book about this severe mercy, and he he wrote this. A severe mercy, the phrase haunted me. A mercy that was as severe as death. Friends, the book of Jonah teaches us that in the storms of life, in the midst of chaos and death, calamity and destruction, whether it's a result of our own doing, just as it was for Jonah, or whether it's just a result of the brokenness in our world, in all of these cases, God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. He uses these difficult moments to extend to us His mercy. I'd like you to think about something this week before we gather again next Sunday. Where have you seen God's mercy? 
Maybe more specifically, where have you seen God's severe mercy? My educated guess is that for most of you, perhaps all of you, the moments where God felt the most real, the most palpable, the nearest to you, have been in those moments of despair, those moments of difficulty, chaos, and even death. Those moments where the consequences of your sin have wrapped you up, those moments where the difficulty of life has rattled you to the core. And it's in those moments that you've seen God's radical mercy. Where have you seen it? Be thinking about it. And we'll continue our study in the book of Jonah next week with Jonah chapter 2.